Hello, everybody, and welcome to the September episode of Jazz Talk Seattle. My name is Josh. And my name is Max. And that's Max Holmberg. Our guest <laughs> today is another Max we have today with us, Max Walker, who's a guitarist. And he's releasing a record coming up pretty soon named Stygia. Welcome, Max Walker. Hi, Max. Happy to be here. Thanks thank for you, yeah. Thank you for joining us. Uh, I wanted to ask you before we dig into the record itself, how did you get started playing guitar and jazz? Uh, well, I started playing guitar when I was really young. Just, um, I think I was around five or six when I switched over to guitar from cello. Whoa. So initially I was playing classical guitar, um, Mm -hmm. and going to one of those small after-school sort of music schools. Um, And then in high school, I kind of started, I joined the jazz band in high school and uh, started um, taking it a little bit more seriously. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, from that, from that point on, yeah, I I played in jazz band in high school and then uh, went to Cornish College of the Arts from there. Nice. And the rest is history. That's very cool. So, the cello and the guitar seem like both rather large instruments for a five to six year old to play, to start out. How how exactly does that work? Well, um, I played, I think it was a quarter, like a quarter scale cello. It might as well have been a, you know, it might as well have just been a viola. Honestly, it was, (laughs) it was very small and I played it for a few years. And honestly, there were not very many cello teachers in uh, Seattle that were willing to teach uh, somebody my age. Mm, uh, so mm-hmm. when my fellow teacher moved away, I had to find a different instrument to play. I see. Uh, and so I was really only able to find a guitar teacher that was willing to teach somebody my age, which was why I switched to guitar initially. But then, lucky for me, I ended up really liking it. So nice. I stuck with it. Do you still Fair play enough. the cello too, or uh, just play guitar now? I do not. I haven't. I've not touched a cello since then. <laughs> so. <laughs> Cool. Play any other instruments? Or just guitar. I played piano as well. Um, mainly, I mean, just because I had to learn it in college, but mm-hmm. then right. I kept playing it. Now I I teach beginner piano these days, so I still play it quite a bit. Um, nice. And use it as a compositional instrument. Um, and then I also Ooh. play uh, a number of Irish to Irish traditional um, like folk instruments, like um, penny whistle, baron. Uh, I play. Um, an octave mandolin. Wow. Um, so um, I actually spent a year in college uh, over in Cork, Ireland, studying uh, studying Irish music. And so I learned a lot of, that's where I learned a lot of those instruments. That's really cool. So we're definitely going to get uh, back to that in a little bit. And I'm really curious what an octave mandolin is. So please don't <laughs> let me forget to ask you about that. Uh, but I wanted to circle back in uh, on a comment you made about uh, using the piano as a compositional instrument. Now, I find that really interesting, especially coming from a guitarist, uh, because um, I guess the educational resources I've seen uh, for horn players uh, or, or basically non-chord in- chordal instrument players um, for jazz is that they would suggest 
you use piano or guitar as a compositional tool, but here yeah. you are as somebody who already plays a chordal instrument, but you yeah. reach for the piano in composition as well, or, or, or only, or what's the story behind that? Well, um, I think the reason that I like to use piano as a compositional instrument sometimes is because I'm not particularly good at piano. And so I think that I don't have any, I don't have any like licks or anything. Mm, on the piano. Interesting. So I feel like, when I'm writing on the piano, I spend a lot more time just thinking about um, just thinking about the melody and thinking about the thinking about thinking about the song as opposed to on guitar. Um, I might find that I fall into there are more patterns that I'm used to playing that I might that might sneak their way into one of the songs that sure. I write more often. And so I, I feel like sometimes when I write on piano, um, I get something that sounds a little bit more honest for me just from time to time. Uh, one of the songs that I uh, sent you guys, SG, that one I wrote on piano. Nice. Very cool. Yeah, I've heard, actually, I've heard several guitar players uh, basically say the same thing with regard to composition. They have kind of a phrase bias um, because of their patterns with the guitar. Absolutely, yeah. Cool. Well, I so wonder... this is, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I wonder if there are pianists that are writing on guitars for the same reason. Or if your name is Josh yeah. Howe, maybe writing on trumpet or <laughs> whatever else you're playing these days. <laughs> just accordion. <laughs> or saxophone. Just accordion. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, cool. So this is not uh, your first record that you've been on, but it is your first uh, as a leader. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Very cool. Um, any kind of a story behind this record? Um, yeah, so, um, well, I, I, I suppose that um, it's really just a combination of things that I've been writing since I got out of college. I think the oldest, uh, the oldest tune on the record, Zug's Wang, I wrote in 2016. Um, wow. So a lot of stuff has been sort of, you know, I've been, I've, I've been working on for a while. Um, and I think initially I started writing more just because uh, more more stuff like this because I wanted charts that I could bring to some of these uh, gigs I was getting where people were asking, hey, everybody should bring you know one of their charts or two of their charts. And um, a lot of the music that I had written in the past was for larger ensembles and was very specific. And so I wanted things that were easier to bring to a bring to a band maybe where we were only having one rehearsal. Mm -hmm. um, and so I started writing more tunes like that. Once I had a bunch of them, I decided I should start putting trio gigs together. And so that was maybe two years ago now when I first called uh, Tim, Carrie, and Remy more at, um, and we really enjoyed the tunes and we decided that they encouraged me as well to track a record. And um, yeah. So over over the I suppose over the last few years we just I just started focusing more on writing trio music. Nice cool. for them specifically as well. After looking at your charts, uh, that's a, a bold move to bring these to a one rehearsal gig. <laughs> I'd say so. <laughs> well, uh, I think um, the charts that I sent you are probably some of the more complicated ones on the record. Those two gotcha. in particular were. Uh, I think I wrote with, you know, recording them in mind, um, particularly SG, that one. We actually have never played SG on a gig. That was only, that's only ever been recorded. So it was definitely more of a studio tune. Cool. Interesting. So 
you mentioned that you've been playing with uh, Tim and Remy for uh, for a little bit now, and I'm really really curious about uh, the statement you made earlier about writing not just for this trio but also specifically for them. Um, mm-hmm. Can you tell me more about that? What are some of the things that you end up in the tunes or in the charts because of um, those specific players you're playing with? Sure. Yeah. So, um, well, one, one, one thing, um, one thing that I really like about playing with the two of them, uh, for Tim, for Tim in particular is that he's a fantastic, um, soloist, bass soloist and Mm. really likes a lot getting bass features. And so I, you know, that's, that's not always true when I'm writing for bass. And so I really like, you know, giving him these fast, busy bass lines really high up because he plays, uh, he's really confident playing in the high register. And so that definitely, that knowledge about his playing definitely affected uh, the sort of bass lines that I wrote for him. Cool. Uh, and it gave him a lot more of a melodic voice. I gave him a lot more of a melodic voice. Um, mm-hmm. And um, for Remy, um, I would, I would say that, um, you know, just the sort of stylistic crossover and the things that we're both interested in, um, it was it was it was a lot easier for me to sort of write things and, ha- and he would understand exactly what I was going for when I when I wrote it. So we're both mm-hmm. big fans of like we're both big fans of Alan Holdsworth um, and players in that vein. And so um, I think that he was the perfect drummer to do this record with, just because uh, of the amount of influences that we that we share. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. I think there's always something special about. Uh, bands uh, and composers that can work with not just players of that instrument, but those specific people, right? Like the mm-hmm. like the old story of Duke Ellington writing for his alto player and his trumpet players, and not just yeah um, any person that could fill that horn chair. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah, definitely. Um, so, in a second here, I think we might take a listen to one of these songs, but I actually had a question about it first. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. It has a bit of an interesting title, Zug Zwang, right? Zug Zwang. Zug Zwang, yeah, right. Yeah, and, and so Josh and I occasionally have been known to play a little bit of chess together. Um, and clearly he reads more chess books than I do, but <laughs> he knew that this was a chess term. Yes. Um, in which uh, the definition here is uh, a situation in which the obligation to make a move in one's turn is a serious, often decisive disadvantage. Yes. Um, so to me, if I think about that in terms of a song or a musical context, that all kind of presents a precarious uh, uh, edge to the music, I guess. Like as if one thing happens that's out of place, like suddenly it gets much harder or, or something. I don't know. What's, uh, what's the story with that? Sure. Yeah. So oftentimes I think that that uh, you know the tunes I write, like um, I the, what I name them after and what I write them about is very therapeutic or it's something that I'm just thinking about a lot. And at the time, it was 2016 when I was writing this, and I was definitely not the best at booking myself, or, you know, booking myself and booking my gigs. And so I often would overbook myself. And mm-hmm. so I think at the time when I was writing this song, I was feeling like whatever I put. Uh, whatever I put my focus on, I would be leaving something else. Um, 
I would be leaving something else, you know, um, underserved that I was supposed to be doing another obligation. Mm. Um, and so, um, I was, I also happened to be reading a book about chess and that term came up and it just seemed like a, a fitting title. Very interesting. Cool. Well, that's a good enough of introduction as any. Let's let's give this so. a listen.
Wow, that was a fun tune. Uh, I got to say, though, for a trio record, this doesn't sound like a trio. I hear a saxophone. What's going on there? Yeah, so this one, uh, this tune is featuring Rex Gregory on tenor saxophone. Uh, so we brought him in towards the end. Uh, we, tracked, we tracked the majority of the record of Robert Langs, but we brought Rex in uh, to track later on after we had tracked the trio parts of the record. Um, at oh, the interesting. Studio. Okay. Um, yeah. So you had him just overdub and like you rec- did you record the trio stuff with just a hole for the saxophone to fill and bring him in afterwards? Yeah. Yeah, we did. Uh, and I was, I mean, I play, um, I play the melody on this as well. And mm-hmm. so I think initially when we tracked, uh, when we tracked this tune and most of them, we tracked it the same way that we play them live. And mm-hmm. then oftentimes I would go in and overdub um, over overdub the way I actually wanted the guitar parts to sound, um, gotcha. you know, where I would split the melody and the chords between two, two different tracks instead of playing them as chord melody. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah, I heard some stuff that I wondered if that was going on because it seemed a little bit more difficult or a little bit too difficult for one guitar to play at the same time. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So um, there, there are definitely a lot of compromises I make when I'm playing this live in order to really convey the melody properly um, mm-hmm. and, and, and not filling out the harmony quite as much as I might want to usually. And so it was really nice to be able to just have full freedom when I tracked it and really include everything. For uh, sure. That's cool. I really like the playing on this overall. Um, and actually, as I think I mentioned earlier, we got a sneak peek at the sheet music for this. Yes. Uh, right before we started this podcast today. I'm kind of taking a look at it. And this is, uh, I don't know if you'd want to call it a, a drummer's dream or a nightmare, but um, <laughs> I think it looks really fun. And uh, it sounds great. And. The first time I listened to this, I have to admit, it sounded a little bit mathy to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, I think that's because I'm a drummer, and I tend to think of things in numbers and try to, to analyze things, I guess. But it's it, it, it actually flows really nicely, even though you've got all this, what most people would call probably crazy rhythmic stuff going on <laughs> in terms of counting sure. and everything. Yeah, it's really cool. I like it a lot. Thanks. Yeah, I yeah. Think when I initially uh, when I was writing this, I was I was listening to a lot of Meshuga. Oh, okay. <laughs> One thing that I love about Meshuga is that you know their music is infinitely complex, but oftentimes it's you know you can still nod your head to it or tap your foot to it, and it's it never you know it's never it never feels complex for the sake of complexity. Really. Um, and that was sort of a goal with this with this tune. Um, the uh, I think I started with that um, motif of two bars of five and then a bar of seven um, behind the main melody, and um, and so I, yeah, so I started with that, and just it was just something that I that I sang or I think maybe tr- drummed on my leg or something like that, um, and went from there, just keeping that motif underneath. Um, initially, when I had written it. I was uh, trying to write things that would feel good underneath like a 4-4 clave or like a constant quarter note that you might hear in something like Meshuga or yeah. uh, some sort of progressive metal band. Um, and so that was one of the, that, that was something that I really wanted to keep in this one was the feeling of you can always nod your head to it on a consistent quarter note, even if the meters are changing underneath. That's awesome. 
And Michigan is just a duo, aren't they? Um, I'm not. I'm not actually. I'm not actually sure. I think it's unless I'm mistaken. I think it's just two people. It doesn't sound like it, but no, I, I, I could be wrong too. I don't know. Um, were there any other other musical influences that went into this one? I mean, Meshuggah is a pretty unique one. I yeah. actually I love Meshuggah too. But so another thing that I was listening to at the time, I think that um, so I was listening to um, a Donnie McCaslin record. Um, mm. I've never heard that tune, uh, Stadium Jazz. I think um, I have. By Donnie, by Donnie McCaslin. I think Mark Giuliano's on it. Um, so I was listening to that, and there's an there's an intro for that tune that, you know, it's just really, like, this really beautiful, soft, almost, like, neoclassical-sounding intro um, that they bring in at the beginning and then return to it at the end and just, you know build the dynamics up and it just gets really huge and epic and i really liked that idea for a form and so um i sort of had that in my head when i was writing uh when i was when i was writing this tune um as well that's what cool. I, I think that was another influence very cool yeah donnie's done a lot of different things absolutely I don't yeah know if you saw him recently with um his uh oh geez um uh, rock cover thing because he, he did an album with um, David Bowie uh, yeah, right uh, that, right? Rockstar. yeah and then um, I, think, I think the band that did that album started touring as their own band um, mm -hmm. and that's like so completely different than what I'm used to hearing Donnie do yeah anyway yeah very cool um all right so let's switch gears a tiny bit. Um, so we talked about how you did this a little bit at Robert Lang. Um, what's it like, I guess, trying to, you've got the record recorded, but we were living in uh, strange times at the moment. Uh-huh, yeah. And um, what's it like trying to kind of go about getting your record put together in terms of promotion? Um really just the whole process right now. I mean, everything is completely different than it, it has been yeah, in yeah. Uh, memorable history. So what's your, what's your process like now regarding this record? So, uh, I lucky luck or luckily for us, we, um, we finished tracking the record, um, in late February or mid February. Just in so, time. <laughs> just in time. No kidding. Yeah. Um, but the mixing process hadn't really started yet. We had just, I think, um, when um, the shelter-in-place order uh, had been, we had just finished the sort of creative phase of mixing and editing, mm -hmm. uh, which I was happy about because it meant I got to be there while we were making some of the, some of those creative decisions. Um, sure. But uh, after that, there was a lot of just. Um, email, phone, Discord communication between me and Jesse Field, who mixed uh, and edited the record. Um, and that took maybe a month. We spent maybe a month doing that. We uh, Oftentimes, he would send me uh, rough mixes back, and I would actually just take them and put them into Pro Tools on my computer and cut out little sections and send them back to him with just maybe a short description of something I wanted changed. Wow. Um, 
So I actually, I feel like I learned a lot about um, effectively communicating with, um, with your mixing engineer and your, and your edit and your editor. Um, one, one thing that I'm definitely going to take away for the next record is including, you know, because a lot of these have MIDI mockups for each part. So including mm. those in the Pro Tools session so that cool. if there's a, something I'm trying to communicate with, um, with the engineer, we can always just pull up the, um, the MIDI and, you know, if there's a rhythm that's slightly off, mm. then we can both hear it and both know what's going on. Um, so, um, yeah, a lot of, so a lot of, uh, over the phone stuff, uh, a lot of back and forth. Um, as far as promotion, um, you know, we're still working on, um, sorting out some sort of live stream show that we might do later this year. Um, but, uh, one big decision that I had to make was, um, just not doing a physical disc release. It doesn't mm-hmm. really make much sense to do that right now. I was going to ask about that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, it seemed like a little bit more of an expense than it was really worth. Um, and mm-hmm. I've been looking at the silver lining of it and just considering that once shows are okay, again, I can do a physical release show as well. Um, and so when, uh, but until then, um, I'm doing a digital release. Um, and, um, yeah, hopefully doing a live stream show sometime later this year. Um, Very cool. Cool. So I like your, um, idea of having, uh, MIDI mockups to, for, for the mix uh, and edit engineer. Yeah. That's a really good idea. I wonder, uh, do do you send those to, uh, your band mates too, to learn the tune from, or did they exclusively work off your chart and playing together with you? So, um, it's always been something I've, I've thought about just how much information I want to give my band because I really want them to make a lot of their own decisions in regards to how they want to approach the music. So I don't want to be too specific when I'm, um, when I'm sending them things like mini mock-ups. And so for this trio, I decided to, um, just chart out my voicings because, you know, other than, you know, there are several of these compositions that I wrote on piano, but a lot of them I did just write as solo guitar pieces first. Mm-hmm. And so I would just transcribe my guitar voicings into MIDI, put that into a, a piano on Pro Tools, and just send that to the band. Gotcha. And ask them to, you know, you know, I would ask, I would ask Tim to maybe double some of my parts. Um, and other than that, I would sort of leave it up to them. Um, but that said, after after that point was done, then I would go through and make more specific MIDI that I could send over to the engineer. Gotcha. Very cool. So I want to switch gears yet again. Uh, You alluded to this a little bit, uh, but you mentioned that you've spent a significant amount of time studying Irish music, including spending some time in Cork. Uh, Tell us about that. I I want to hear all about these instruments because I don't actually know what a lot of them are and I would love to learn. Sure. Yeah. So I, I did my um, uh, my junior year at Cornish. I did a study abroad. I went through a study abroad program and spent a year over in Cork. Um, my parents are actually from Ireland, so um, mm. made it a lot easier for me to do that. Um, and so, um, yeah. So I, I I did a program or sort of like a music program over there where. Uh, they essentially had me learning several different traditional instruments. Um, 
taking, I, I took a few classes on things like folklore and, and Irish music history. Um, and so the instruments that I, I learned, I learned the, uh, the penny whistle, mm-hmm. which is essentially just, it, um, it's, it's basically just a recorder, but made of metal. Um, and so, um, I, I, uh, also learned the Baroque flute. Whoa. Whoa. Which, <laughs> Uh, is it has pretty much the exact same fingerings as a penny whistle, but you uh, play it with a flute embouchure mm-hmm. uh, instead of like a recorder. Um, I learned the baron, which is an Irish drum. Um, so, and then other than that, I also I do I mentioned before that I do also play the octave mandolin. That said, I didn't study that over there. That's something that I picked up in high school gotcha. uh, to play Irish music. And yeah. what is an octave mandolin? How does that differ from a regular or a mandolin that doesn't have an adjective in front of it? <laughs> so an octave mandolin is just uh, it's just a mandolin an octave lower. Oh, um, okay. So twice as just about twice as big. I like it because I, I you know I mean I love the mandolin. I play the mandolin as well from time to time, but I think the octave mandolin has a it sounds a bit richer for me um, mm. and. You know, from a practical standpoint, um, the strings are a little looser. It's a little easier on my hands. I don't have to cramp my hands up quite as much to play different things. Um, sure. Is the scale of the neck closer to a guitar when you play an octave down? Yeah, yeah. It's, I think it's a, it's a little bit closer to a guitar. Um, and, yeah, it's a ton of fun to play. Um, you know, one thing that I really enjoy about playing Irish music is just the tradition of learning by ear. Um mm-hmm. And so for me, Irish music has always just sort of been the one place I can go to play things without thinking about theory or um, chord scales or anything like that. It's just purely playing with my ear. And, that's cool. Um, oh, that's really cool. Yeah. Thinking about so, melody. Do you think, and if so, uh, that it affects your jazz? And how, how do you think this has uh, shown up in your record? Uh, yeah, I, I do. I, I so um, think that I mean it's from a pra- so from a practical standpoint, it's affected my right hand technique a lot huh. uh, just because uh, Irish music is or, well, I suppose certain uh, like reels and, and things like that um, can be played very fast, and because of the fra- because of the phrasing, you're picking most notes, and so. Uh, early on, because I started playing octave mandolin, I think when I was around 15, 14 or 15, I developed a pretty fast right hand technique. And that's definitely affected how I phrase my eighth notes when I played any style of music, I think. But it's also just been a useful, a useful thing for me to, I, um, I got, I, I started practicing faster right hand technique fairly early because of that. Um, nice. and I think in general, um, it has affected my phrasing, um, especially playing things like Tin Whistle, um, which is, you know, really, I think that the phrasing that people use on that instrument is really what makes it, you know, um, there's like a real wealth of different phrasing choices and different grace notes and techniques you can use to get those grace notes on the, on the penny whistle. Um, and if you're playing something like a ballad on the penny whistle, it could be a really, really simple melody, but 
you know, the grace notes are what make it interesting. And so that's mm -hmm. certainly something I think about a lot when I'm writing melodies or when I'm interpreting more simple melodies. Cool. Um, and then a big thing that I was thinking about with this record and some of the tunes that I wrote on this record, um, it's just something that I've been really interested in with Irish ballads and certain styles of Irish ballads with uh, singers. Uh, one thing that I've noticed with groups like um, a really popular Irish group called Day Dan and would do this fairly often. They would have uh, a singer uh, who would be singing in Gaelic, but not necessarily following any meter, um, mm -hmm. really just speaking conversa conversationally in Gaelic, with, uh, but adding pitch to, uh, to his voice. And the band, but he would be accompanied by a full band that would basically just follow his speech patterns. Wow. Um, and so I thought that was really interesting um, um, because it created these really complex meters, but they weren't necessarily um, they didn't have, they didn't necessarily sound complex. They were just following somebody's voice. Hmm. And so that was how I wrote quite a few of the songs on this record. I didn't start with any certain meter in mind. I just sort of thought of each phrase as being a word or a sentence. And then I would cool. go through and figure out what what meters I had written afterwards. I love that. I think that's yeah, how the coolest music is made. That's yeah. really, really cool. I like how that, uh, it, it to me, like what, what it brings to mind that it flips um, the jazz improvised solo on its head where a soloist, um, I mean, a good accompanist will follow the soloist anyway, but um, the soloist essentially can lean on the accompanying bands uh, playing the form and mm -hmm. the solos will ride those harmonies. Right. But it sounds like uh, this is a reverse of that experience. That's really cool. Sure, yeah. Yeah. Um, say we wanted to find some Irish ballads to listen to. Um, where would we go to find some of that? Um let me pull up a record here because I can't remember what it was called. But um, <laughs> okay. it's a Day Dannon record. So Day Dannon is a great group to listen to um, for this stuff. They're, Day Dannon? Yeah, they're they're basically just all stars, you know, in in the Irish music scene. Um, just all just really really fantastic players. They're led by a, a fiddle player named um, Frankie Gavin, I believe. Um, but Day Dannon. Let me see if I can pull them up here. Yeah, so uh, a great record by Day Dannon to check out is called The Mist-Covered Mountain. Cool. Hmm. Cool. Um, yeah, and so that's got a lot of different stuff on it, a lot of different kinds of tunes, but some really great ballads that sort of uh, that showcase what I was talking about earlier. Yeah, I have to admit, I, I really don't know any Irish ballads. I don't think, anyway. Same. So I'm going to have to check this out. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, let's get back to uh, the record that you've got coming out. And sure. the next tune that you had sent to us is called SG. Yeah. Does that stand for something? And yeah. what's the story behind it? Uh, well, you know, this one's not nearly as, uh, I, I suppose it's not nearly as interesting, but, but um, it, uh, so SG Basically, it's so basically this one had just sort of a silly working title for the longest time because I couldn't think of anything to name it. Um, we called it, uh, we used to call it Spooky Ghost because it kind of sounds spooky. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> I didn't actually name it. A buddy of mine uh, 
named it that, but it's uh, the vibraphone player on the tune. Um, and so obviously I couldn't call it Spooky Ghost on the record. But Why not? That sounds yeah. great. <laughs> I thought about it. There's actually a um, there's a little spoo- there's a little uh, sample of Boo from Super Mario at the beginning. <laughs> Cute. Of the tune. Nice. But um, uh, yeah, so I decided it would be funny to call it SG because I, I just felt like maybe somebody was if somebody was asking me asking me about the tune, they might think that it was. With, it was referring to the guitar and the Gibson uh, SG. Actually, it's actually spooky ghost. Nice. So <laughs> I was thinking about asking that, but I, I wasn't actually going to ask it. <laughs> Very cool. Well, now that we've heard the backstory behind the title, maybe it's time for us to hear the song itself. Yeah. Thank you. 
I hear the spookiness in this tune. I, this was a lot of fun. Uh, you know, this song, um, and the other one too, for that matter, but this song in particular, uh, I really love the the tone you get out of your guitar. And it sounds like there is a crazy amount of effects pedals going on. And oh, I want to hear about it. What's what's going on there? Yeah, so um, I definitely uh, have to give credit to Jesse Field, the engineer that I worked with for that as well, because he, he's a guitar player as well. And um, we sort of combined all of our pedals together to sort of experiment Ooh. a lot of different tones. And nice. so at that point, I think I was running through um, maybe two different choruses. Um, mm-hmm. I had um, a Strymon delay. And then I had my I had my uh, vintage delay, so I was running through a couple different delays. Um, I think one of my favorite tone things that we got in on this track was uh, the solo, where I um, was running through a, a synth pedal called a synth nine, which I've never tried oh. before. But that was wasn't my pedal, but uh, so it was my first time trying it, but. Um, yeah, so that was how we got that sound. We were running through a synth pedal. Are those the synthesizers that uh, happen on the outhead too? Because I heard some like, uh, I guess some counter melodies or, or, or some like background kind of melodies. Um, uh, um, yeah, near the outhead. So those uh, those were actually uh, those were actually produced afterwards. Uh, Tim Carey actually uh, put those together. So he designed the sounds in um, in Logic and then sent cool. the MIDI to us um so those yes that was just an arpeggiator that we uh that we programmed later on but uh, the solo was a synth pedal yeah okay very cool nice i was gonna ask oh uh go ahead max no no go ahead i was curious about your experimentation process with these pedals um is this um from my experience recording in a studio like i get there and it's like a really high pressure tight time situation where you try to get a lot of stuff done uh really quickly because studio time is really expensive and so in my experience at a studio there's not a ton of time for experimenting on uh experimenting with different things so i'm curious did you uh borrow some pedals and and play around with them up front or did you experiment in the studio or did you maybe even record without pedals and then uh, add them in in post how how did you go about that? Well, um, initially when we tracked this, actually, and we were tracking over at Robert Lang's, and mm-hmm. when we did that, we were we were working with two days, and so I think that uh, there wasn't quite as much time for experimentation. Sure. Um, and so, actually, the main uh, guitar or the, the the guitar comping in the background was actually initially meant it was meant to be a scratch take, but we oh, liked no it, way. And we kept it mm. in. Um, yeah, initially I had, I had just wanted vibraphone to be playing the playing the chords, and I just wanted the guitar playing the melody. Um, mm-hmm. But eventually, we just decided that the the guitar chords sounded good as well, so we decided to keep them. Um, and so um, a lot of that stuff, yeah, it wasn't nearly as experimental as the stuff that we did at Robert Lang's. Um, I added a uh, com- uh, a compressor to my. Uh, chain, which I had never tried before, so I think that was the main thing that we were experimenting with. That and uh, usually I don't use a reverb pedal. Usually mm. I just use the spring reverb in my amp. Sure. Um, but that said, when we did the guitar overdubs, we did them at a different studio called Studio Sage, 
Um, and that was a lot more laid back because it was just me there. We were using a much smaller room, so it was much more affordable and more just by the hour. Um, mm -hmm. So in those in, in those cases, we had a lot more time to experiment. And so I ended up borrowing a few amplifiers from different friends. Um, I brought um, a, a number of different guitars. I brought an arch top that we tried using on a few things. Um, and a few different electric guitars. And we messed around with a lot of different chorus pedals, in particular chorus pedals and uh, delays. Um, so at that point, when we were over at Studio Sage, it was a lot more stress-free and we had time to really experiment. With some That's really nice to have that freedom. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Yeah, I was going to say, initially, I was going to, to comment on the song itself. Um, but then the more I listened to this, it was actually, it became apparent how much time and effort had been spent on the actual recording and production of this song. Mm -hmm. At least to me. Like, I mean, I think of, I mean, I, I don't know, you can call this jazz or you can call it whatever you want, but I think uh, typically jazz records don't have maybe this much attention to detail when it comes to the actual recording process. Sure, um, yeah. I mean, I, I almost think of this as being on par with something like a Steely Dan type uh, recording process or something. Yeah, all the sounds are so specific and and it fits together. I mean, you can t you can really tell that a ton of time and effort went into this, and it's really cool to hear this much effort put into the sound itself. Sure, yeah, well, that's something you don't oftentimes get with jazz records. Mm -hmm being mostly acoustic and whatever, I guess. But yeah, so that was something I really liked. <clears throat> I, would, I would say that I, I tend to be a fairly meticulous composer. Um, and so I can spend a lot of time just, um, you know, fiddling with one measure, one chord voicing. Um, and this, this in particular SG, I think is more on par with um, how I typically write, um, which is a lot more structured, a lot more, uh, I, I tend to write parts instead of writing lead sheets. And this mm -hmm. was actually the only tune uh, on the record that had a score and parts as opposed to being a lead sheet. Um, initially, I tried to do it in lead sheet form, but it was just, there was just too much stuff. Um, and I think some of that may have actually come from writing it on piano, just the amount of range and freedom that I had in that. Um, I wrote a lot more layers for this one. Um, there were also a lot more sort of polyrhythmic things that I wanted to experiment with that required a lot of specific notation. Um, in particular, um, towards the beginning of the tune, I have um, the vibraphone playing 16th notes uh, along with, I had Remy playing 16th notes on the ride, but then I had him playing half note triplets in his kick drum. Oh, man. Uh, along with Tim playing these half note triplets as well um, to create create just a cool texture for the melody to sit over because the melody was fairly sparse at that point. Um, and so definitely a lot more specific part writing on this one, I would say. It shows. It's cool. Yeah. Who's playing vibes on this? Uh, so um, one of my classmates from Cornish, Jack Burgess, Mm-hmm is playing vibes on this and we've had we've been we've, we've got a long history of playing together on a lot of stuff and so 
I always try I always try to bring him in for at least one tune on everything I record. That's um, fun. And so so uh, yeah, and then there's the also the added benefit of him being my roommate. So we had a lot of time to workshop it, look at voicings. I really nice. just love composing for vibraphone, and so um, and so anytime I can get the opportunity to do it, um, I'll always jump on it. That's <laughs> cool. So when does this record come out? When when can we listen to the whole thing? So this record is going to be releasing on Monday, September seventh, and that'll be a digital release. So it'll be up on Bandcamp, Spotify, all the stream different streaming services. Cool. Some of them may take a little longer, I think, to, you know, really get up there. I, I'm not sure how long it takes for Spotify or Apple Music to verify, but it'll be on uh, Bandcamp day one. Nice. Good. That's the best one anyway. Yeah, yeah. It definitely that is, is the best, best one. <laughs> cool. Awesome. Uh, well, are there any other projects you, you want to mention while we're on the podcast here? Or is this kind of just taking your focus at the moment? At the moment, this is what I'm focusing on. I've had a lot of time to just uh, sit around and compose new music uh, over the last few months. And so, um, yeah, stay tuned. I think I've, I've got a second red- record pretty much ready for this trio. So I'm, I'm, just, focusing on, I'm just focusing on them right now. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, it's, I mean, I can tell you're putting a lot of time into this. It sounds really good. Thank you. Nice. Well, thank you so much for joining us and for all of you uh, lovely podcast listeners. You've been listening to me, Josh, uh, Max Holmberg, and our guest, Max Walker, with his new record coming out pretty soon, Stygia. Uh, You've been listening to the Jazz Talk Seattle podcast. If you like what you're listening to, you can look us up on SoundCloud, Facebook, uh, Spotify, iTunes, wherever (laughs) wherever you get your regular podcasts. And thanks again for listening and we'll see you next month.